What you're about to hear is a presentation that I gave on Saturday, October 2nd uh, for the Pan Paracon about the topic of UFOs over Africa. First and foremost, I want to thank uh, Vanessa, Mira, and Jason for asking me to be a part of this. Uh, What you're going to get is like the presentation unedited. It's raw. I didn't want to edit it down so that you could experience it the way that I gave it. I hope you enjoy this extra-long episode of the Our Strange Skies podcast. And this one's going to be live, so everyone check it out. (laughs) This is the one that's not going to be, the only one that's not going to be still available. So if you go anywhere, you chose poorly. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Hello. How y'all doing? Good. How are you? you? Uh, I'm good. Oh, man. There's been a lot of great panels today. Holy crap this has been awesome i've been uh tuning in as often as i could and it's a lot of great stuff going on here so many wonderful people agree to this i'm just i'm like endlessly i'm filled with this reservoir of endless joy and delight like that that people have come out and supported and you are one of them though rob we're actually incredibly lucky that everybody who agreed to do this agreed to do this that's Mm -hmm. how i feel like just yeah totally it, it was uh, an incredible honor to be asked because I've never been asked to do anything like this before. So uh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much uh, for asking me to do this because uh, uh, this and, and what I'm talking about today actually ties into a lot of the research that I've been doing uh, to begin with. And uh, it was something that uh, I definitely uh, wanted to bring to the people. And I think this is kind of the perfect arena to do it because uh with our strange skies i only have so much time and uh with the two-hour block here you're gonna get a lot of interesting ufo cases from africa which uh in many ways uh is a country that is often overlooked for its ufo activity and there's a a a few different reasons for that 
that I'll, that I'll get into here shortly. Um, uh, for, for those that don't know me, those uh, that are seeing me for the first time, hi, I am Rob. I host this podcast, uh, which is a podcast that uh, deals exclusively with UFOs, UFO stories. Uh, we generally cover a singular uh, topic, a singular story uh, per episode. Uh, I've been a UFO researcher for the last six years, and, and I've had a myriad of uh, UFO sightings in my own life. Um the, the subject that we're talking about today is uh, UFO cases from Africa. And this kind of relates to uh, something that uh, you are all familiar with that happened back in June when UFO Twitter was on uh, its full sexist bullshit display and it was you know called out as often as it could. And it really exposed how uh, marginalized voices are not addressed within the UFO community. And if you look at the image of uh, UFOs within that community right now, it is a very Amerocentric. It is uh, focused on military encounters, which while they are fascinating, excludes so many different uh, experiences and voices out there that uh, it gives you a, an incredibly narrow view of a really fascinating subject given that, uh, you know, these things range from just a simple light in the sky to, hey, this weird alien brought me on board their UFO and they, like, showed me around and stuff. Um, there's a vast range that gets left out that uh, just infuriates me about <laughs> this subject because uh, a, a lot of people don't see UFOs past 2004. And it's uh, it is frustrating. So... Uh, that got me thinking about a lot of the marginalized voices in this community because uh, you see it with women uh, whose stories don't often get featured and uh, in terms of their research in the community often gets downplayed or doesn't receive the boost that it deserves. You see that from LGBTQIA plus uh, people. Um, and, and to be honest, there's only one uh, story that I've ever covered that features uh, uh, there were a group of uh, lesbian and bisexual women who, because they all knew this one particular woman, they were having these abduction experiences. Uh, some of them were um, because of the relationships that they were in with her. Some of them were friends with her. And uh, there was this very strange uh, connection with this woman that led them to have these abduction experiences. Um, a lot of them were one-off. But um, it was just a fascinating case that nobody talked about. Like, why is nobody talking about this? And uh, that's not to say that uh, the, the folks investigating this didn't have problematic views because uh, one of the uh, investigators, a, a guy named D. Scott Rogo, had um, very troubling things to say about this case uh, up front in saying that he thought that these abduction experiences were uh, essentially rape fantasies and i'm like what are you no w what the hell are you talking about that is garbage dude um and th the main investigator on this case was a woman named ann Druffle, and, uh, and i loved ann Druffle because she wrote one of the best books in the 90s called how to defend yourself against alien abduction and like it was this case that kind of sent her down the path of 
okay, well, how do we, is there a way to combat these abductions? Uh, because there was uh, one woman, her name was, uh, uh, her pseudonym was Lori Briggs. And she talked about how when she was a teenager, she would fight off these aliens by basically humming in her head. And they're like, oh, they create a sound. So I created a louder sound. And they just kind of left me alone after that. Uh, but uh, the explanations and the reasoning behind these cases that they arrived at were just ridiculous so you had d scott rogo's uh interpretation which is uh, just again just terrible but uh you had aunt druffle who couldn't look at anything uh, beyond a, a christian view of things because that was her lens with which she like looked through everything and you could go buy this book this book has been uh republished uh under the uh, uh anomalous uh imprint and like there's troubling things even about neanderthals in there like she's like oh neanderthals are just knuckle scraping um yeah, cave people and, and and we're finding out now that they may have actually created art so no they're a little more nuanced than you give them credit for um and the biggest voices that i i, I saw being um marginalized here uh were people of color uh in, in like so much so that i don't think there are very many people that could name an african-american that had a ufo encounter there's there's really only one in my mind that comes that, that uh, comes to it and it's a man named harrison bailey this is another case that um was uh, investigated in the in the 1970s and harrison bailey uh he was a uh, minister in uh, the chicago area i believe and he talked about having these abduction like experiences, but he also claimed to take pictures of aliens. Never seen them. Don't know if they actually truly exist, but it, it is a, a, another Aunt Druffle case that, that was absolutely fascinating. But um, to take it a step further, I, I, I've always been kind of fascinated with Africa because one of the uh, most fascinating UFO cases comes from Africa, the aerial school landing, which is, it's not a case I'm going to be talking about tonight just because it's been talked about so many times uh, over and over again since 1994. Um, and if you could pick one case to represent um, kind of the UFO uh, culture of Africa, it, it's kind of a perfect cross-section because, um, you know, it, it occurred in, in Rua, Zimbabwe, in 1994 uh and it kind of gets into the fact that uh in the areas of southern africa it's kind of a melting pot you you have your folks that are of black african ancestry you have uh folks because the a lot of these countries were colonies there's a lot of white folks that live there but there's also a lot of asian folks that live there and it's it's more of a melting pot than i initially believed so the breakdown of the folks that uh, of the children that had experiences during the uh, aerial school landing, there were your folks of black African ancestry, your white folks, uh, your uh, mixed race folks. And there were actually Asian kids there that I didn't even realize, but uh, you know, breaking it down, uh, the concept of the UFO in Africa at that time was relatively new. It had started to emerge in the late 1980s uh, with uh, the, the way that UFOs started to come into popular culture a little bit more. So uh, in 1987, uh, there were two books that were monumental uh, within 
the UFO world. Uh, one of them was a book called Intruders by Bud Hopkins, and it detailed uh, Debbie Cobble's experiences uh, in, in her abduction experiences. Uh, and the other one is uh, Communion by Whitley Strieber. The image on that book kind of, uh, it, it, it seemed to like unlock a lot of different experiences for a lot of different people because uh, up until that point, uh, abduction seemed like something that, you know, a few people experienced here and there. The, uh, the beings that they uh, encountered were uh, very different. Sometimes they were human looking, sometimes they had mushroom shaped heads and uh, very weird eyes. And, and sometimes they were very uh, human looking. And after that incident, it was kind of like, I had experiences with this back in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. And I would be remiss to say that Whitley Strieber, uh, especially these days is a pretty problematic dude, uh, especially his comments following the murder of George Floyd. Uh, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, Whitley Strieber basically thinks that it was a false flag operation. So, uh, you know, screw you, Whitley Strieber. But um, that, that book in particular kind of put ufos more into the mainstream you saw uh experiencers appearing on uh shows like oprah winfrey i remember watching like alien abductees with my mom when i was a kid on those shows and stuff <laughs> like that uh and, and the other big thing was unsolved mysteries um just given the uh the network that it was on it gave exposure to UFO cases to, uh, you know, spirit hauntings and things like that. Uh, and one of the big cases that it featured was the Roswell incident. And it was because of Unsolved Mysteries that the Roswell incident kind of became a household name. And it was around this time that uh, UFOs really started to be identified as UFOs in, in, in Africa, which is um, interesting because they have... Uh, uh, not the richest history, but there is a history there, nonetheless, that is worth talking about. So um, for a long time, there was just no uh, exposure to the idea of UFOs in, in Africa. There were UFO cases, but they often weren't interpreted as UFOs, uh, especially folks of Black African ancestry. The main thing that they would interpret them as is ancestral spirits, uh, which is kind of not unheard of in the United States when you think of terms like uh, ghost lights and, and, and like the, the Marfa lights and even the Heselin lights in, in Norway. When you look at those, a lot of the times they are, um, they are related to spirit activity or believe spirit activity. People who have been, you know, murdered by the tracks or something like that, or uh, people killed in, in mines. Um, for uh, the native African people, they are more ancestral than, than anything. And um, I've kind of broken this down into four different categories of cases that I'm going to bring, bring to y'all. Um, and the first kind is uh, what I like to call um, they're they're like orb cases orbs or uh what i call them <laughs> blobs of light because they they seem like something more than orbs and uh they often do things that are um they they interact with their environment in very strange ways so 
the first case that I want to bring to everybody's attention is uh, the Rosmead light. So uh, Rosmead is in South Africa, and in November of 1972, uh, there was a uh, primary school uh, that uh, was run by this guy named Harold Truder. And he was coming back from a, a weekend away. And he actually lived right next to the school. Actually, I think he lived on school grounds itself. But uh, he, as he's coming into his driveway over by the tennis courts, which had just recently been installed, he, he sees this uh, light in the sky that's shooting a beam down right at these tennis courts. Uh, and he draws his wife's uh, attention to this light. Uh, and it's there for uh, a short period of time. It disappears. He goes over and investigates. And he sees that what has happened is that what, what, whatever this light was, it caused these perforations in the tarmac of this tennis court. And it actually looked like uh, there was a weight put it put to it because uh where this uh light shot down this beam uh there was uh an indentation in the ground and there was also small pieces of the tarmac embedded into this guy's garage and this guy's garage was 200 meters or 650 feet away from the tennis courts which is uh, you know, fascinating for uh, something that you witness for uh, just a just a short period of time. So uh, there's actually additional eyewitnesses that uh, came forward. They they worked uh, at a nearby military camp. One of them was a, a rifleman named S.J. Rousseau, and he was uh, he had actually taken his mattress outside with uh, three other guys because it had been about 100 degrees that day and they were trying to just get fresh air and uh at about 8 15 that night they uh it was primarily him but he did point to this light to to his uh his other buddies they didn't seem to care but uh he saw what he assumed to be like the taillights of a car uh because it was red in color but he noticed that there were no like accompanying white headlights or anything like that. And uh, these lights kind of just seemed to hover about five feet off the ground. So uh, despite the fact that, uh, you know, we have uh, multiple eyewitnesses in this case, uh, the police just determined, well, th there was, uh, you know, some vandalism here. And I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, how do you, uh you know crush some tarmac <laughs> like without having uh some like heavy machinery uh and uh like the interesting thing here is that the tarmac had the appearance that it, it had melted a little bit so you know you've got some crazy people out here with some uh intense heat and and stuff like that uh you know ruining this tarmac but uh the uh, the main investigator in this case is a woman named Cynthia Hind, and Cynthia Hind uh, investigated UFOs in uh, Africa for about 20 years, and she is the one person responsible for the body of work 
that uh, I uh, was able to draw from. And she had an interesting theory in that this UFO basically got itself stuck in the tarmac and it had to like force itself out. And that's why uh, it appeared melted. And that's why uh, Harold Truder had small pieces of tar in his in the in the back of his garage. So you have these this is a first example of these very strange orbs of light. Um, another case comes from, uh, it's a, a place called Chinhoi, uh, Zimbabwe. And uh, there's a farmer there named uh, Taki Maurice, who uh, had a dairy farm that overlooked this, uh, this hill that uh, dipped into a, a beautiful valley. Uh, this is September 1983, and Taki is walking out of his farmhouse to, uh, you know, get an early start of the day. It's about 3, 3.30 in the morning. Uh, the dairy trucks have started to arrive, and they're starting to be loaded by uh, his workers. And that's when he notices in the valley, there's this, uh, it's an orb of light, uh, an orange orb of light that just kind of like traces its way up and down the valley. Uh, he doesn't think anything of it at first because it just kind of disappears and he doesn't see it again. But on multiple separate occasions, he goes outside and he sees this light, you know, in the morning. And at one point, uh, again, it's another early morning. He's going to uh, sees the trucks being loaded. He goes over to uh, his staff and he's like, hey, do you, do you see this light over here? Uh and they're like, yeah, we see it all the time. It's, uh, you know, we think it's a good spirit because it doesn't bother us. So Tucky, underneath his breath, says, well, I wish it would come closer. And of course, he gets his wish. So it's about 3.30. Uh, they're loading the truck. And all of a sudden, one of his workers just like steps back. This light had come within uh, about 70 meters or about 200 feet away, and it, it was just coming closer. Everybody was so scared at that point that they all piled into this milk truck uh, because uh, in many ways, uh, these orbs of light uh, generate a fear response in a lot of the native folks of Africa. So uh, Taki got his wish and uh, after that, he, he didn't think anything of these orbs. He just let them do what they wanted. Um, there are incidents in which uh, there are uh, negative connotations to them. There is a case of a man whose name was Maganga, and he was walking home. He was taking this path home, and this white orb of light appeared in his path, and he was initially terrified, so he started to turn around and uh, go back the way that he came, only the orb would appear every time he turned around. And eventually this orb went out. And after that, he started to feel this, uh, like a pair of hands choking him. This feeling, um, you know, it dropped him to his knees until, you know, it eventually subsided. It took him some time to actually collect himself and get uh, to get back uh, home. Uh, and he would go on to report that uh, after this experience, he had trouble moving his limbs. He couldn't talk. And that uh, eventually 
the family, his, uh, his family called in uh, a medicine man that had to come in, brought forth an herbal remedy, and he ended up like vomiting this uh, green substance. And uh, after that, he kind of returned to normal. So uh, you, again, this, uh, this further interaction with these strange orbs, uh, the most uh, important case in all of this, and, and one that I've talked about on social media before, and especially, uh, you know, after the UFO Twitter uh, sexism crap, uh, is a case called the La Rochelle incident. And I think the La Rochelle incident is a good example of how these things can be interpreted differently, these uh, uh, kind of UFO sightings. So on the northeast border of Zimbabwe, uh, nestled in the Mbiza Valley, there is this beautiful sprawling estate known as La Rochelle. And, uh, you know, when you first uh, walk upon it uh, in, in the descriptions, you, the first thing you see is this incredibly tall watchtower. It just kind of looks down upon anybody that comes on the property. Uh, and, and on their website, which you can still visit La Rochelle today, you can actually book weddings, you can book conferences, you can book whatever you want. Uh, this is how they describe uh, the La Rochelle estate. Quote, a, a magical cross twixt fairy tale castle and French chateau surrounded by manicured gardens on the edge of a verdant forest cloaked mountains. This luxury house is an oasis of tranquility and charm. And like, I think that's all I've ever wanted in life. Give me that tranquility and charm. I am here for it. Just, uh, just go to town. Um, so the, uh, the, the way that this property is built is just, kind of very strange and it, uh, it it gets into a lot of uh, very different types of uh, you know architecture there is a building that is known as the fantasy building which uh, for the original builders of the house uh, the family named the Cortalds uh, Stephen and Virginia uh, the fantasy building was often seen as kind of like a greenery in a way um, so uh, Lady Virginia, she often housed her orchids in there. And, it, it, and like, it's actually a very beautiful uh, part of this entire uh, sprawling estate. Uh, and in, what's interesting is that uh, it's actually managed by their um, uh, forest training school. So they have um, different things that they actually teach out there, um, kind of like uh, certain um like basket making techniques there are people that will teach you that there and 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 a bunch of different things but um in august of 1981 the the area was maintained by about 30 laborers um and they had three game park wardens that uh, uh managed this and uh, at around 6 p.m on saturday the 15th of august uh, a woman by the name of uh, eunice kachti she was home. A lot of the uh, residents, uh, the people that worked there actually lived on the estate. Uh, it, she was in charge of the home crafts workshop where she would teach, you know, basket weaving and stuff like that. Um, she was looking out her window uh, at this cassia tree that she had this beautiful view of. 
and she could see the strange ball of fire up in this tree. And then she noticed that below it, there were these two strange men and they had these like elongated flashlights in their hands and they're looking up at this like very brilliant light. Um, and, and the only feature that she could discern aside from the flashlights is that they were all wearing a pair of jeans. Now, um, she didn't exactly relate these to like the, the staff on hand. They kind of look distinct. So uh, before long, this ball just started to roll out of this tree and it headed for an area called the tea room where uh, the Cortals would take tea. Um, and its color, which was initially like a yellow, it started to change into this uh, very uh, menacing red color. And it started to just grow in size as it rolled along. Uh, and it eventually reached the diameter of about five feet. Um, and this ball moved uh, behind this tree, rolled towards this tea room. Uh, and it kind of just like went back and forth a couple of times until it came to the observation tower. So this observation tower was huge. And it, this ball just started to roll up uh, into this. Um, and at the time, there was another witness uh, named uh, Nason Sampindi, uh, who was the Courtauld's actual former gardener. So working for the uh, forestry service, he was actually walking out of the apostolic church that they had on the grounds. And he sees this ball enter this tower at the top. And from his vantage point, it looks like it's on fire. But the thing is, is like there's no flames shutting out. It's just the color of what the would look like flames. It's it's you know this reddish orange, and it seems to be radiating out, radiating out uh, from all angles. Uh, so the ball remains in there, and they can kind of see it rolling around a little bit. And uh, it, it was at this point that um, the ball started to roll down the hill, or down the tower. And uh, one of the main witnesses to this case, a guy named Clifford Muchena, he sees this ball, you know, at first uh, at, in the tea room and he, and he witnesses it going up into the watchtower. This was around 630 uh, at, by that time. Uh, and like nearly everyone's alerted to this thing. Clifford sprang into action because he thought it was uh, a fire, like uh, whatever this was, it was catching everything on fire. So he's headed for... Uh, this building, called, uh, the fantasy building, where they would house all these orchids, orchids and stuff. And he's going to go ring the emergency bell to get the attention of his boss, a guy named uh, Andrew Connolly. So uh, as he's running, he's noticing, because the, the ball isn't too far away from them, that it's not leaving any scorch marks of any kind. There's no uh, you know, burns left by whatever this thing is, but it looks like fire. And inside Clifford, uh, he, he would later remark how it looked like there were flames on the inside of this thing dancing around. So he goes and he uh, rings this bell and he keeps following this ball until right near the fantasy building, he sees three men that are just standing with his back to him. And at first, he thinks that one of these men is his boss, Andrew Connolly. So he, he calls out to him. And that's when these men turn around. And uh, 
the way that he describes them is that they're, they're wearing these whitish overalls, but he can't see their faces because there's an intense bright light that is coming from their faces. And it's just so incredibly luminous that it forces him to drop to his knees and it blinded him. At a certain point, he actually just fell forward to put his hands up over his eyes in the hopes that whatever uh, was happening would stop. And eventually, when he does sit back up, he, he notices that they're gone. The ball is gone. These uh, men are gone. And uh, they, the, the event is over. When Cynthia Hine went to investigate this case, uh, she was there, uh, I want to say, like maybe a month or two after it had happened. Um, she, she was, uh, you know, it had interviewed a lot of these people. And, and, and the one thing that I like about Cynthia is that uh, she's not one of these people who believes that you interview these people once and that's it. She would, you know, maintain contact with many of these witnesses over the years. But uh, she, no, she talked to Clifford about uh, what he thought this was. And he was in the camp uh, with many of the witnesses that had seen it, that it was an ancestral spirit of some kind. And when Cynthia asked him, well, that's not what your ancestral spirits would look like. They would look like this. Clifford had the best response. He said, yes, but times change. Like, this man was willing to accept that, hey, these things change over time. So uh, it, it could definitely be a spirit, but hey, um, these things could definitely just change over time. And I, and I love that about this, uh, about this case is that, uh, you know, a man in his beliefs is willing to accept that they can uh, change form over time uh, to to fit in with a, a more modern age. Um, and uh, one type of ancestral spirit that they believed this entity to be was uh, called a shave. And a shave is essentially uh, because of a tribe called the Mishona tribe. They believed that there were certain spirits that would come back to haunt their ancestors if they had not uh, done them right uh, or had fulfilled their uh, duty for them before they, uh, you know, departed. So what I find interesting about this case is that there is a similar case in Aveyron, France in 1966. Um, and I don't have a, a uh, I didn't have time to uh, prepare any slides, but um, on this farm in Aveyron, France, this uh, unnamed family, uh, they ended up uh, seeing these balls of light on their property. And they, they too described them like fire. Uh, they looked like they were burning on the inside. And uh, they would see them on their farm over a period of months. And they would see this thing called a shell, which looked a lot like a missile silo in, in a way, or like a grain silo. But uh, this is essentially... Uh, I, I love this image because uh, this is um, the uh, patriarch of the family there. And this ball of light would actually follow him around wherever he would go. Most of the time they, you know, 
remained in their home. They didn't want to go out and deal with this. And, and, and they had a very passive attitude. Like the, the grandmother of this family was the first to see this object. And uh, <laughs> the, the funny thing was, is like she believed that uh, it was a fire, but somebody else was going to get it. She was going to bed. <laughs> So, uh, you know, you have a, 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 a very interesting parallel to the La Rochelle incident in this case. And uh, I, I, I just love it so much. Uh, it's eventually a case that I will cover on um, Our Strange Skies somewhere down the road. So um, moving from the orb cases, I only have a few um, close encounter of the first kind case uh, cases and uh, CE2 cases that uh, I'm, I'm going to present. And um, the only CE1 case I have here is from a, a guy named Joe Seeley who lived in Cape Town, South Africa. He was uh, driving to Monte Vista to pick up a uh, maid actually that was coming to live and work uh, on his property and uh this was uh, this sighting was in uh you know early december 1980 it was between 3 30 and 4 p.m that uh he was driving on this highway and at first he sees what he describes as a glint in the sky out the window uh you know something uh that uh, is the the sun is shining off of and eventually he notices this thing that is making an arc in the sky. And, it, and uh, the, the woman that he had with him, uh, who was of Black African ancestry, also saw it too. So uh, eventually he pulls over on the side of the road to get a better look at this thing. And it... <laughs> for lack of a better term, as it comes closer, it looks like a rocket. But the thing is, is that it has identifying marks on it. He claims that he sees a United States flag on it and the words USA written in bright letters. But the thing about the sighting is, is that this rocket is making very little sound. And in fact, the entire time this sighting was taking place, he claimed that uh, he couldn't really hear anything. And eventually this rocket would come down nose first uh, at an angle. And then it would kind of, uh, you know, uh, turn parallel to the road. And he was like hundreds of meters away from this thing. But it was apparently shooting out so much flame. The flame behind this object was twice the size of um, the actual object itself. And I actually have a an image here of what it looked like. Um, so it's, it's a very poor display, but like he claimed that there were identifying marks. He couldn't remember all of them, but uh, just like so much flame shooting out the back of this, there's like no sound coming from this thing. And eventually uh, it kind of does a couple of passes on the road until it just shoots up into the air and um the description of this thing uh <laughs> uh the way that um he talks about it uh i want to quote joe here um quote when it was almost horizontal to the ground i had a very clear look at this uh for a long time 
I was surprised that it was so short and very thick in diameter. It was dumpy. <laughs> uh, the nose was not uh, it was not a long pointed nose. It was more cone shaped. But like, dude, the audacity to say that uh, your uh, <laughs> the UFO that you're seeing is dumpy, I, I think is bold. That's a, that's a bold move right there. It's it's getting into the Guillermo del Toro area where he was like trash talking the UFO that he had seen. It's just so great. So great. Um, uh, moving on from this case, um, there's another CE1 case uh, that occurred on September 16th, 1965. And it was seen in uh, Pretoria, South Africa by two constables, a guy named John Lockham and another guy named Coos de Klerk. They were kind of patrolling late at night and uh, their, their headlights fell on a, uh, a, a disc-shaped object. It, it kind of almost looked like uh, a large floppy hat in a way. It was copper colored, 30 feet in diameter. And it kind of had just like a luminous glow about it. Uh, they, they saw it for about 10 seconds before it just kind of lifted off in the middle of the road. And uh, there were these gouts of flame shooting out from behind it. But uh, that's just like another interesting case. And like with these cases and the way that I'm presenting them, it's kind of giving you, trying to give you like a spice of life uh, of these cases in that... Um, what you're getting is a lot of cases from the perspective of white people and what you're getting is a, a lot of perspectives from uh, those of African ancestry and it's kind of a mixed bag here in that um, from a cultural standpoint you have two uh, primarily two different cultures coming at this from a very different perspective in that uh, you know the 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 native Africans see this as something that is uh, very um, tied to their their tribes and tied to the old ways of life whereas the folks the the white folks of today see it more as kind of uh, technological in a way um, and, and it's interesting to see how those two um, cultures kind of uh, treat each other in those spheres so there is a precursor kind of incident that took place in the week leading up to the La Rochelle incident. And it's kind of hard to call it a UFO incident specifically. But um, in Mutar, which is about nine kilometers or about five and, and a half miles away, there was uh, a gentleman by the name of Jacob Niewergelt. He uh, worked and managed a sawmill uh, in the town. And at about 10 a.m. on this particular day, he, he wasn't exactly sure on the day, but uh, uh, the, uh, the main investigator, Cynthia Hine, said it was uh, in, in that week leading up to the La Rochelle incident. Um, a number of the personnel there saw this bright white flash in the sky. It was very instant. It was instantaneous. It was, it lasted about a second. 
there was no sound, but it's it looked similar to kind of like an explosion in the sky. And moments after this happened, the radial arm saw just stopped working. So uh, they presume that it overheated. They end up taking the the motor apart, and they realize that it, it it was fine. It wasn't even you know all that hot to the touch. So they broke down the motor more, and they found that the solder that was uh, that that held the armature together had melted apropos of nothing like uh what the heck so uh this caused the motor to just stop working and it was is something that they could not explain uh it's something that happened that uh is uh I, I i'm kind of lost for words on that one how does uh something like that happen but um there again there, there was no overheating of any kind so uh just an interesting incident that occurred in the in the weeks leading up um and there are cases in southern africa and a lot and, and uh when i talk about uh, um and and a lot of the ufo uh history that you have coming from africa all of them are uh southern african countries so you're talking about uh, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, um, Namibia, uh, Botswana. These are the areas where a lot of these UFO cases are coming from. So um, there are cases in which uh, UFOs seem to be interested in water, which is something that is commonly reported within the United States, is that uh, there seems to be some kind of connection between um uh ufos and water um if you're familiar with the albert bender story and if you're familiar with his story he talks about how um when uh he had his initial men in black experience they appeared in his room that uh these aliens which looked like the Flatwoods monster. That's what he claimed they looked like. They took him on a ship to uh, Antarctica where they were apparently gathering water that they needed for a fuel source. So that type of thinking has been in the UFO community kind of for a long time, regardless of whether you believe Albert Bender's story or not. It's definitely out there, but it's, it's still fascinating nonetheless. But um, so there was uh, <laughs> this woman, uh, she was given the uh, moniker PL. She lived in Komechi in, in South Africa. And in November of 1991, she was having trouble sleeping because her damn pool pump kept going off. I mean, this is something I, I've talked about in the, um, there's a series of incidents in uh, Florida in Gulf Breeze in, in the late 1980s uh, by a guy named Ed Walters, who um, his story is, is definitely very fantastical. It was one of the first stories that started to emerge following the abduction phenomenon. And uh, he talked about how he just kept having trouble with this pool pump. And like, you kind of want to plead to these aliens, hey, come on down. And uh, just like 
fix the stamp pool pump or something, you know, like help a guy out. So this woman was having trouble with her pool pump. And uh, as she's going outside, she sees this blue flickering flame and and it wasn't very big. It was about uh, like a foot high. Uh, And it was this intense, like really blue color. And she, uh, she couldn't really make out any flames, but it was just this blue light. And, uh, it seemed to be coming from the base surrounding her pool pump. And and she observed this for about 15 seconds before the flame just uh, vanished. Um, and strangely, before she returned to bed, she actually looked outside and she saw this similar blue flame in her neighbor's window. Didn't know what it was. And uh, it eventually it disappeared. So the next morning, her husband goes out. Uh, and notices that the the pool uh the water level is much lower than it was the day before in fact it was actually missing uh about 528 gallons i don't i don't know how that happens but uh, apparently this is blue light is just desperate for water and uh there's a much earlier case that is is equally fascinating that happened uh in 1979 the uh this couple ron and heather moses they had a 52,000 liter tank um which is about 13,000 gallons of water on their property um and when they had checked it uh this was on like a saturday night they saw that it was you know just completely full there was about two inches of water uh from the top and then the next day they go outside and the tank was bone dry they didn't have any explanation for it because uh, there was no leak that they could find. Uh, there were no tracks leading to their tank, uh, making it seem like somebody had poached the water. Um, but they did have a, a bunch of UFO sightings in the area that uh, kind of corresponded to uh this uh this incident so in the end they chalked it up to this ufo stealing their water and and you know i'm just gonna say it's kind of a dick move it's kind of a dick move ufos let's take it easy we need the water too um i think it's kind of cruel to just you know uh, uh rob it from these people but you know i understand ufos gotta do ufos got a ufo you know um so now we're going to move into the CE3 cases. CE3 cases are absolutely fascinating. They are kind of the bread and butter of what I like to do at our strange skies, just in that, uh, uh, you know, aliens or strange beings, they always make a case that much more fascinating. Um, and uh, I've broken this down into three categories on its own. So uh, you've got your traditional contactees in um, the, the sense of the 1950s contactees in the United States. Uh, Africa did have a couple of them, which I, I will touch upon briefly here. Um, the traditional CE3 cases, because uh, who doesn't love those uh, in which... Uh, alien beings are seen in association with ufos and um the the final one is abductions because there are a a few abduction cases that do come from africa so um 
part of the reason that UFOs started to catch on in Africa is because of uh, one, Cynthia Hind. She actually started to uh, give more and more radio interviews in the 80s. But there was another woman who uh, had come forward in the 1950s claiming uh, UFO uh, contact uh, in, in the way of like a George Adomsky or a Truman Bethram, people from like, uh, you know, uh, different planets. They looked very human-like. They more often than not had blonde hair. Um, and uh, like the contactees are like the much more peaceful kind of uh, way of uh, uh, approaching things as opposed to the abductions, which is that it's uh, contactees are often like a consensual experience generally happens. They are brought aboard UFOs. They are taken to distant planets, shown different things. They often return because they can't breathe the air uh, in the atmosphere is just uh, not breathable for them. Uh, and the story of Elizabeth Clare is kind of like that in that um, she, she lived in the Drakensberg mountain range. And um, at the time, uh, this was in 1954, she claimed to see a UFO land nearby and she claimed to see an individual outside of a porthole window. Now, this individual, uh, he had like long blonde hair and he had these gray colored eyes. Um, and this initially just terrified Elizabeth Clare. She didn't want anything to do with it. And then this, uh, eventually this UFO kept coming back, kept coming back. And then she met the man uh, that would uh, come from that UFO. And this man's name was Akon. And like, I almost can't take Akon seriously because uh, uh, this case is is a great example of that song Smack That uh, just in uh, the the area that it goes. So um, Elizabeth Clare would go on to have sexual relationship with Akon uh, going so far as to birth a child named Ailing um, which was birthed on Akon's home planet of Matan. So she births this child on this planet. And unfortunately, she cannot live on Bataan. The air is not breathable. She eventually comes back. And uh, I think what's fascinating about this is, again, we're talking about UFOs in South Africa in 1954. Her, her story first appeared in print in uh, about 1956 in the uh, uh, pages of Flying Saucer Review. And uh, she be, she became like a public darling in uh, Africa for, for many years. And in fact, she would use her celebrity status to live with people when she did not have any money. Uh, and there is going to, uh, there's definitely going to be some uh, people that I will talk about that she did kind of take advantage of that, um, uh, her status uh, afforded her. Um, the second contactee, uh, and honestly, if you want to hear Elizabeth's whole story, because I just didn't really want to get into it here because it's very fantastical. Uh, there's a great 
podcast called the saucer life they did a, a fantastic episode on the story of elizabeth clare um the second contactee uh was a man named edwin and edwin worked in a factory in the town of durban in in south africa and his supervisor which uh, th- this guy had come on you know relatively recently when he when he started working there uh was a man named george and the two would go on to become very good friends and uh they would actually often work on uh edwin's motorcycle after work or they would go fishing together and then one night when they did go fishing george took out what uh looked like a radio receiver and he started talking to someone on it uh making odd commands uh having them uh do odd things and it was at this point that george turned to erwin and said that he he was an alien and his name was valdar and he had to return to his planet called coldus interestingly enough they kept in contact throughout the years uh edwin claimed to be able to channel uh valdar uh, he would have channeling sessions and uh, th- they would keep into contact, you know, so it's nice that people can have these long distance, uh, you know, uh, alien friendships through channeling. It's, it's fantastic. I, I wish uh, I, I, it makes me want to do it in, in a way. I want to make some alien friends too. Um, so pivoting now to the, kind of traditional close encounter of the third kind cases um this one right here it almost feels like a contacty case in many ways because uh when you separate out um your traditional kind of ce3 encounters they're often encountered in a state of uh fear witnesses are often terrified they're often uh paralyzed to the spot they can't move um the story of this man uh known only as henry um and cynthia hine kept the uh the identity of a lot of these uh witnesses uh a secret unless they were fully open to it uh but henry uh he had uh moved to uh the um the Poral Valley in, uh, near the Groot uh, Drakenstein Mountains of South Africa in, in the 1950s. He had a, uh, Henry was British. He worked for the British Rheostatic Company as an engineer, and he had a wife who was Spanish. And uh, they had actually spent the Christmas uh, of 1951 on this uh, farmhouse that had been uh, kind of uh split up into uh and subdivided into a, a bunch of different smaller cottages uh it was called the Lillefontaine farm and this um this couple they own this uh it was kind of like a french car uh they didn't get into the uh details of it but uh it had been experiencing trouble this was shortly after christmas and um Henry decided that, uh, you know, it was, it was at night, it was around seven o'clock, he decided that he was going to put in some repairs for it, because they had to make a trip the next day. 
And, uh, you know, he worked on this vehicle for about four hours. And uh, instead of, you know, waiting the next morning to, you know, drive and, and, and the main problem was the battery, uh, he decided, oh, I'm going to take a quick shower and then I'm going to head out, drive up the mountain and, uh, you know, give this thing a good charge. So um, he, uh, you know, takes a quick shower and he hops in his vehicle and he heads uh, toward the Drakenstein Mountains. There's a road that goes up it. It's it's kind of a narrow road, but it's uh, one that um, at the time when this case was investigated in the 80s by Cynthia Hind, it had been investigated previously in the 70s by a uh, Spanish man named J.J. Benitez. By the time that she had uh, investigated this case, this road had become like a, a, a heavily traveled road in the area. At the time, it wasn't so much, but uh, even still late at night, it probably wouldn't have gotten many visitors. So he travels up this mountain and he reaches the top uh, at around 11.15 p.m. And he sat uh, for a while looking down over the plateau, over this uh, rough, rocky area. And as he was on his trip back, he was startled by a man that just stepped out of this uh, dark portion of the mountain um and into his headlights so he stops the car and this man uh he looks to be wearing kind of like a light lab coat like he's some kind of scientist or something and he raises his hand up to flag him down walks over to the driver's side window and he and he asks him hey do you have any water and uh henry was just kind of caught off guard he's like the only water i have is in the radiator of this vehicle and this man who's Henry, it's, it's not really clicking for Henry. This man is uh, shorter. Um, he has like the, the appearance of a normal human man by and large. Uh, but uh, he, he starts to get visibly upset because he desperately needs water. So Henry being the good guy that he is, he's like, okay, um, there's this stream down the down the way just a little bit uh hop in the vehicle we'll go get some water so uh it's about a third of a mile down this uh, down this mountain so the man climbs in the passenger side and i mean i think it's cool if an alien dude wants to step in the passenger side of, of a car have at it um they they take a trip down down the road they go to this um this spring that crosses over the um the road and uh the only thing that henry has to collect this water is an old oil can so they wash it out they uh they collect some water and uh he directs henry to this uneven ground right off the road it, it and it's in a darkened part of the mountain uh henry described how the moon was out that night and you know it was pretty bright in the area but there was uh, right next to the mountain there was this darkened area so he has them uh drive into this uh area and his headlights fall upon what looks like uh just a smallish uh it was about uh 10 to 15 meters uh, in diameter or about 32 to 49 feet, uh, just 
disc on the ground and it stood about 13 feet above the ground it was uh, on uh, some feet and there was a ladder leading up inside it so this alien being directs henry to come with him quickly so they grab the um the can and Henry climbs that, uh, it, it, or he counts that it was eight rungs to get into the vehicle. So they climb up in there and uh, immediately he's in a circular room and he, and he describes how there's like this kind of long couch that uh, extends throughout like the entire outer wall. And on the couch, he sees a man on his back. There's a couple other men that are attending to him. And he realizes that um, something has happened to this man. He's hurt in some way. So this alien being asks him, the, you know, my friend burned himself. This is what we need the water for. So they bring over the water. They, they apply it. Um, and despite being, you know, apprehensive at first, like, Henry's just kind of like amazed by everything that's going on inside here. So uh, the, the man, uh, the, this alien man is as polite as he can be. He gives him an opportunity to ask questions. And uh, so the first thing that Henry asks him is like, where are you from? And the man simply says over there. And he asks him again. And he just says over there, like, you know, if you're on Earth for a little while and you and you see, uh, you know, what we're capable of on, uh, of on this planet, I understand why you wouldn't want to tell anybody where you're from. But uh, he also uh, asks, because, you know, Henry's an engineer, how their ship worked. Where was their motor? Um, which the being replied that there was no motor, but they had the ability to nullify gravity and generate a magnetic field and using this like heavy liquid and um eventually these beings just tell henry hey you gotta leave now you, you gotta get off the ship so they direct him outside and uh henry just just goes on with his, his life but uh it, it just seems interesting how this incident in many ways was tailored to the eyewitness in that um how he was able to you know ask these questions and look into this technological craft and again it gets into the difference between the ancestral spirits and this technological thing two very separate things that are going on and and in this section we will also hit upon um those of black african ancestry that do encounter these discs and still think that they are uh, ghosts. So um, probably one of the uh, other incidents that has kind of a good, uh, is a little more well-known than um, the others that I'm talking about uh, is what is known as the uh, Mindalore incident. Um, the main witness is a woman named Megan Cazette and uh, this incident occurred on January 3rd, 1979. She was up late reading uh, a book uh, and her 12-year-old son actually walked into the living room and said, I, you know, I couldn't sleep. So they uh, ended up going into their kitchen to get some water. 
And that's when their dog just started to go nuts. Their dog's name was Cheeky. <laughs> and uh, it just, the dog started to, uh, you know, bark excitedly. So um, she goes outside and she realizes that the dog has busted through the fence and is running down the street. So uh, Megan and her son, Andre, uh, chase after this dog. Uh, she's concerned because she doesn't want it to, you know, wake up the neighbors, uh, cause a racket. So uh, she pursues the dog um, up a couple of streets um, until, until they get to this new access road that had been built. And she saw what she believed at first to be an airplane that was coming in. And, and that statement kind of seems strange because it's like, this is a small residential road. It's not going to be able to land on it. So why is this plane coming down? But it was the color of the light, which she described as pinkish that kind of threw it off to begin with. Um, and then she saw that the object was egg shaped definitely not a plane um and actually the bottom of it was pretty flat it was standing on four legs encased in this pink light and there were also two additional lights uh one on each end of it that were projecting onto the ground and at first she's baffled like am i seeing you know military technology or something like that and as she's standing there puzzled with her son, these six men emerge from this craft. And, and, and that's an interesting aspect to this case, too, is that when often when describing the occupants of these craft, they if they're vague about the descriptions, they will say they look like men. And if they are. um and, and even when they're not, they are described as very human-like. And that, and that gets into an interesting aspect about colonization in that, you know, the interesting parallels between, you know, the white man that comes to these countries and these other men that come down in these UFOs. Um, they're not always seen by uh, folks of Black African ancestry but they are seen in kind of this universal way. So these six men emerge, they're wearing, uh, four of them are wearing coveralls from head to toe. In fact, their faces are actually covered. And uh, two of them actually, their faces are exposed and they have darker skin. In fact, they describe them as like uh, suntanned in, in, in many ways. They had long black curly hair and they had black beards so they started immediately going and in, in uh picking up grains of sand and they would watch it slip between their fingers and then one being that they eventually you know split off into these uh two teams of three one being would speak in this rather sing-songy voice while the other one would speak in a monosyllabic tone. It was very strange. And, and this is not something that's really unusual in UFO cases. You, there are many people that will report uh, aliens that uh, speak in high sing-songy voices. 
but it's the interaction here that's truly fascinating because it seems like they're essentially speaking two different languages at the same time, but yet they're understanding it. So um, the languages were completely unfamiliar to Megan, but she compared them to something like Mandarin um, or, or Chinese, uh, a, 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 an Asian kind of language. So these strange men then went to examine the tarmac and they would press their hands into the surface of the road. Um, and they started to kind of compare the road to the sand. And then they noticed that Megan and Andre were standing there staring at them. So one of the men that uh, with their face exposed starts to walk in their direction. And, and, and um, the, this man bows to them and starts talking in this monosyllabic tone. They don't understand what he's saying, but uh, Megan describes how his eyes were very enticing and they were very calming. And then about a second later, she gets very apprehensive. She says she feels dread. So she yells to Andre and says, you know, go run to your father, go get him, uh, you know, bring him here. Because she was rooted to the spot. She, she just couldn't move. So um, after that, the two men that were closest to her exchanged a few words. And then all of a sudden, bam, they were gone. They disappeared. Uh, they didn't see them, you know, climb back into their ship or anything. They just suddenly disappeared as if they could just, you know, appear in the ship at any time. And the, and the difference between that and watching them emerge is, is, is interesting. Like, what did you need to emerge from the ship if you could just, bam, you know, make yourself uh, come out of the ship or go back into the ship? <laughs> Very strange. But when they, when they did, she noted how the legs on this craft started to grow in size. And it started to walk around on its own very briefly, uh, kind of like an insect in, a, in many ways is what she described it as. She, in fact, she thought the legs of this thing were very spider-like until the object eventually just shot right up into the air and uh, disappeared. Um, interestingly enough with this case, there were additional eyewitnesses that would come forward later um, a husband and wife living in Mindalore reported seeing this gray cone-shaped craft with four legs on the bottom. And um, at the time when they were able to uh, uh, connect this, that their dog Cheeky started to bark is when they reported seeing these strange beings that uh, started to show up. So uh, it's kind of interesting how they have this um this interesting you know kind of corroborated story of a very strange ufo and their human occupants and and again like the human occupant the appearing aspect to these cases is is endlessly fascinating not all of them are distinctly human looking uh the folks in the aerial school landing they uh they were drawn in a, a number of different ways uh some in which made them look like grays and others in which kind of made them look more human-like with large eyes and long black hair 
So this idea that these aliens are appearing as human, uh, very human looking is, is, is endlessly fascinating to this different cultural take on this phenomenon. So there's a few um, shorter CE3 cases that I have here. Uh, one of them is uh, the Groendahl Reserve incident. And there were four boys, Peter Simpson, uh, Johnny, uh, Hugo Ferreira, and Joe Perino. And they were hiking on this reserve in 1978. And uh, they were actually staying the night there. And um, uh, Peter Simpson's mom was actually going to pick them up the next day. So um, on the morning uh, of the next day at around 1115, these four boys see this glistening stone that's about 3000 feet away from them. And at first it looked like there were these, the, what they described as poachers nearby. Um, so they had um, walked over to, to see what was going on. And that's when they noticed that they were covered head and toe in like the, what they saw as like kind of like aluminum foil in a way and there's a there's an interesting similar case to this and and they equated it to like a firefighter suit um there's an interesting uh similar case from 1973 in falkville uh alabama in which a police chief who had been sent out to investigate a ufo ended up seeing this man and he took a picture of him that was covered head to toe in what it looked like aluminum foil uh it was later believed that it was a hoax um and that it was a person wearing this type of fire suit but uh the the similarities are interesting um the boys noticed that there was like no sound as these men started to move towards them and they did end up seeing them and they were not so much as walking as they were gliding. They didn't appear to be touching the ground at any time. So these two strange figures eventually become three as another one joins up with them. And this third is carrying kind of a smaller suitcase. And this is, again, something we've seen in a lot of uh, other uh, humanoid reports from other countries uh, in 1977. Uh, in um, in uh the uh there there's a series of incidents uh a, in west wales in which there were what they described as these spacemen some of which would be carrying the suitcase uh around different properties for different purposes so it's interesting that you have that here uh with these group of boys um so these strange men they approached a fence and they actually just glided right over this fence before they uh, just followed this hillside and eventually kind of just disappeared what they found later on um uh in the area where this uh glinting stone was seen was that there was an oval depression 23 by 65 feet uh, in the ground uh, with nine indentations outside the ground uh, 
just a very interesting CE2 kind of uh, analog to this case. But uh, again, the similarities are interesting, despite the fact that the UFO is not as widely known. Cases are, uh, especially like not very well-known cases, are not really known in this country at this time. UFO periodicals didn't make it over there. UFO uh, books, there were no real, uh, they didn't really have television uh, programs de devoted to this. They didn't have radio programs much developed to the, uh, devoted to this until, again, the 1980s. So um, uh, three years prior to the Groendahl Reserve case, uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Danny Van Gran, uh, he was a resident of Loxton, South Africa, um, arose early one morning to examine his sheep pens. He was a farmer. And he noticed that parked in his enclosure, like, again, this is incredibly early in the morning. He, he saw what he believed to be a government geological survey vehicle just parked in his enclosure. No idea how it got in there. But what he believed them to be doing is prospecting for uranium. That seems to be something that, you know, I'm sorry, you might want to discuss with, you know, the, the person that uh, you're you're talking to uh hey we're gonna come and and hang out in your you know sheep pens and we're gonna go look for uh, some uranium you know it's fine don't worry about it too much <laughs> but um the the idea just like isn't totally dawning on him until he walks up and he sees that there's a bunch of figures inside this, and they were definitely not from the geological survey. And when the beings inside this craft notice them, they shot them with a beam of light, and their craft just departed rather quickly. Kind of a dick move, not going to lie. You're in the wrong place at the wrong time, pal, and you're going to shoot this guy with a beam of light? Not very cool. Not cool at all. Um... So to get into a, a CE5 case involving folks of Black African ancestry uh, that is very much seen as a, as a ghost case, uh, a guy, a gentleman by the name of Solomon Katavu, uh, his brother, and a couple other guys were making their way home to a village near the Huang Game Reserve. Um, this was in 1983, and uh, their bus kind of dropped them off about, you know, three or four kilometers away from their houses. And so they, you know, just decided that uh, they would walk home. Um, this was uh, late at night. There were no lights out there. So they were walking along this road next to some dense uh, scrub brush, and they noticed that there was this bright light in the sky. And they kind of stopped to watch for it, uh, watch it for a second. And then this light descended directly in their direction. And they immediately feared for their lives, assuming that this was some kind of ancestral spirit. So they took cover behind some trees and this light continued to descend and it got to about treetop level. And the light, as it came closer, they noticed that it was disc shaped. Uh, it was it belonged to a disc shaped object, and uh, this um, 
soon the, this machine opened up and there were two men that just started to descend and they described them as men. They started to float down to the ground and immediately uh, they just made a run for it. They were not sticking around. They ran for home, ran the last few kilometers. Uh, but again, it's, it's interesting that even still, even when you have this technological aspect here, they still associate them with ancestral spirits. Like Clifford Machena says, hey, times change. So uh, that may, in fact, uh, you know, be true. So um, now we're going to get into the CE4 cases, the abduction cases. And uh, the variety of them is, is kind of fascinating. And, and you can kind of... Um, uh, break them down into two different categories. Uh, one of them is a, as a, a dreamlike as anything. Uh, it, it, and in many cases, abductions have this dreamlike feel to them. Um, many times when describing them, they, it feels like, you know, it's a singular incident that happened kind of inside their bedroom. There isn't any, um, you know, craft that they're brought on board or anything like that but the the similarities to abductions are there and then there are the straight up traditional kind of, of, of abduction cases uh the first case um involves a woman named uh, caroline she was 21 years old at the time she lived in the eastern highlands of zimbabwe and um her experience her first experience occurred Again, around this time when UFOs are starting to be recognized as UFOs in the country. And uh, her experience uh, occurred on April 1st, 1988. She was lying in bed, just unable to sleep one night. And she kind of had this eerie feeling. And this is a feeling that uh, I I've often seen described in many cases in which um, there's just like a strangeness in the room. And there's also like a, a silence in the room as if you've kind of just been you know, cut off from the rest of the world. So she's laying there. She can't even hear the ticking of her alarm clock. So uh, all of a sudden, this bright white light shoots in through her ceiling. Um, and with the appearance of this ball comes this paralysis. She cannot move. And whatever this thing is, it just seems to start to float around the room. Um, it projected beams of light in, the, in, in a horizontal manner, uh, which was uh, the, instead of like, um, uh, you know, uh, projecting light all over the place, it appeared to be presenting it in a strictly horizontal manner. Um, and she could see this thing moving between her bed and her dressing table and kind of just moving around it. And that's when Caroline looked up to the ceiling and she could see where this light had come from. There was this shaft of light that was going up and it connected to a UFO that she could see through her roof uh, you know, above the house. And not only that, she could actually make out the image of some nearby trees uh, adjacent to her property. So she sees this um, uh, this light kind of move around her uh, room for a little while. 
until it just kind of uh, disappears. Um, she lays there in bed for a little for a little bit longer uh, uh, until she just like has to get out of there. She's going to go wake up her mom. Uh, when she gets into her hallway, that's when the power cuts out. But she eventually rouses her mom, and uh, they they wake up her sisters too, and they go into the living room. And you know she's just trying to come down from this experience, trying to you know take it easy, and all of a sudden, um, she feels as if uh, the energy is being drained from her. She feels weak. She also feels kind of weightless and um she's sitting there with her sister and she asks her sister hey do you do you feel this too and um at first she notices that there's this kind of gray haze between her and her sister she doesn't know exactly what it is but uh kind of like a gray fog and um when her sister would talk to her, uh, one of them sounded like uh, incredibly garbled, almost like, you know, when your internet signal kind of like cuts out um, when you're when you're in a Zoom meeting or something like that. It kind of sounded like that. It was very delayed in, in many ways. And then when her other sister was trying to talk to her, she just sounded like she was uh, coming from uh, she was hearing her voice from very far off. So later on her sister confirmed that yes i was in fact feeling weightless at the time when you were feeling weightless and they also claim that her sister uh, that caroline her eyes had grown in size and they were radiating and that is a a a bad weekend right there when your eyes grow and and they're radiating it's just it's just crazy but um they caroline would go on to have kind of a few other experiences like this uh not as intense as this but uh still uh equally terrifying um the second case here is involves a man named bruce and and bruce uh was a black zimbabwean man um and he kind of had similar experiences that Caroline did, uh, definitely defined by paralysis and this feeling of isolation. So about a year after Caroline's experiences, uh, in November of 1989, following a day of work in the fields, Bruce came home and he just kind of went to bed. Uh, he was really tired. So he started nearing the sleep, but uh, he started to feel strange. He couldn't move his head, hands, legs. He couldn't really move anything. And the air just started to feel really dense around him. Um, he also had this feeling that there was someone in the room with him. And uh, he couldn't see anybody, though. Um, there was this also loud whirring sound, which is, you know, commonly reported in other uh, UFO sightings, especially... Uh, ufos ce1 cases ce2 cases hearing this kind of sound of like a motor or something like that and his first initial thought was hey this is a ghost um despite the fact that he was never able to confirm anything visually this is a ghost that is affecting me right now um 
and eventually all of these feelings subsided. Um, they went away and um, they started to remind Bruce of these feelings that he had when he was a kid in that uh, he would often wake up feeling paralyzed. He couldn't remember any of the experiences after that, but uh, it, they were definitely distinct to that point. Um, there was a follow-up incident in July of 1990 that is just absolutely terrifying. So uh, Bruce woke up um, feeling ill. His skin felt like it was burning. His uh, throat was sore. His eyes were swollen and he couldn't actually keep any food down. And he started to remember the night before, slowly but surely. Um, he had woken up and he had seen over in a chair by his door a strange figure sitting there looking at him. Um, and when he looked at it, this figure got up and moved uh, in his direction and came very close to you. Um, it pulled back his hair and this being said, if you tell anyone about this, I'll kill you. I will finish you off, which no, thank you. No. Um, Bruce tried to fight this being off, but was unsuccessful. He described the face of this individual as being very white with non-human features. And, uh, like the, the being in the field, that those kids saw they this being seemed to glide instead of walk um what makes this even creepier is that later on uh just given the nature of his room he was able to find some very small footprints that led from the door all the way to the wardrobe and they just disappeared now that's that's a nightmare i don't want and I, 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 I am no thank you. Um, I, I'm gonna have nightmares about this and not down with it. But um, Bruce grew up being told that whatever this was, it was actually a tokoloshi. Now, a tokoloshi is often described as an evil spirit in many ways. Sometimes it's described as a goblin. Uh, the guys of the Kryptonaut podcast did, did uh, kind of a two-part episode about um, the Tokoloshi in, in these really kind of well-documented cases in which they were kind of messing with like families in uh, Southern Africa. I can't exa exactly remember what country it was, but um, they kind of have different ways in which they are presented so yeah sometimes they're evil spirits out to do you harm sometimes they're summoned there by someone who wishes ill will upon you and at other times they're considered like uh, goblins in many ways so the last case that i have for you all is uh, it's one of my favorite ce3 cases because um the witnesses they're a mother and daughter team here and uh their abductors are kind of overly nice in many ways they still have a job to do but uh just in the way that um 
the dichotomy of the way that the witnesses handled this, uh, which I'll get into shortly. <laughs> so this goes back to 1988, again, around the time when uh, UFOs are starting to uh, be uh, identified as UFOs and, and stuff. Um, and these two women, they're a mother and daughter. Uh, Phyllis is the mother and Diane is uh, her 34-year-old daughter. Um, they, they took part in kind of a typical abduction case. Um, and what's interesting here is that um, there was no hypnosis required to recall these events. They actually just started to come back to them on their own. So uh, on this particular night, Diane's husband was hard at work putting together a commercial for a company. He had a deadline to hit. So he was pulling an all-nighter and Diane called her mother to come in and help. So from about midnight to 3.30 a.m., she came in and she helped in every way she could uh, until eventually she just asked Diane to bring her home. So she agreed and it, it was about a seven minute ride. Um, so it wasn't too incredibly far. So right at the top, uh, as they were going out to their car, Phyllis started to describe the night as being very strange. It was cold out. It was oddly silent. Um, and when she opened the car door, she noticed that there was this bright star in the sky. It was large, though, and it seemed to be throwing off these rays of light, kind of like the star in a Christmas tree is the way that she described it. And the star seemed to follow them on their short trip. It, it, it would move uh, down uh, hills and back up with them. And, and the sight made Phyllis incredibly nervous. So, uh, so nervous, in fact, that when she arrived uh, at her house, she asked Diane, hey, could you just pull up like a, a few houses over? I don't want the aliens knowing that I live here. I mean, I think they are uh, uh, know already, but, you know, I could be wrong on that. I could be wrong. That's fine. Uh, but they, um, they put the car in park and when they did this light, which started to take on this like elongated shape was projecting orange lights off of it. Uh, and it started to descend and it came between a pair of trees. And at first Phyllis described this thing as being squarish um and the way that it just creeped up along the trees it's kind of terrifying in the way that it does it's like nobody wants to be stalked by a ufo like you know just go about your business we don't need to do this in the creepy banner but the moment that diane actually turned off the car this object shot right directly at them and uh at closer range they noticed that it was donut shaped uh ap uh if you're watching man donuts dude we got some donut sightings uh happening here but um this object kind of turned and flipped over a couple of times and phyllis claimed that she could see uh, about six to eight beings on board this thing and she describes one as having uh their hand on their hips and a uh, hand on their face which is uh, an interesting posture, but um, 
she Diane was so frightened at, at what at first she didn't even want to look at this thing uh so she actually just covered her face and her mother told her that to stop being silly uh that, that you're totally gonna miss up miss out on this on the terrifying ufo people diane come on uh but um the strange thing about this craft is that underneath it it was actually hollow like a traditional like this is an actual space donut here space donuts we got them uh they could actually look up through the bottom of this craft and actually see the stars above. So kind of like a cut scene. They're in the car at first. They're looking up at this object. Phyllis is seeing all these uh, people on this, uh, on this craft. The next moment, Diane feels herself being led up into this craft um and it up into a ramp so this craft is lowered uh come down much lower and and she keeps asking where am i am i dreaming because she feels like she's dreaming and there's a woman that is guiding her and this woman is very strange she has no hair uh her skin was finely textured she had a kind of almond shaped eyes uh but she described her as very beautiful um, and in fact, she said this multiple times and she would go on later to say this in like telepathically to this woman that she was just incredibly beautiful. She was uh, just slightly taller than Diane herself, uh, but her skin uh, was actually darker. She described them as uh, uh, this woman as having uh, like a, a dark suntan. And uh you know, uh, I, I think my favorite detail here is that she was wearing, um, quote, an all-in-one tracksuit. So we got some totally 80s, you know, get up here. I'm loving it. Uh, it was d dark blue in color. And, and later on, it would actually change to a lighter blue. Um, so Phyllis, who is being led up the ramp by a man a very similar statue, very similar looks. Uh, he is bald. He doesn't have any hair. But uh, this man um, just has a gentle smile. And, and Phyllis also describes him as being very beautiful. They just uh, take them by the arms. Phyllis is kind of uh, struggling a little bit. She doesn't want to be going up there. But uh, eventually they are ushered onto this craft. And they are enveloped in this white mist, almost like steam. And uh, Diane recalls being put into this, like, uh, almost like a trance-like state, being incredibly calm. And that was when the woman approached them and said, Greetings, I am from the Pleiades, and my name is Malila. And um, Malila was the communicator. Every bit of communication happened through this figure uh she definitely had the appearance of a woman and we know that because in the description uh, the one thing that uh differentiated them is that she had like a, a small pair of breasts so we have that going on um and this woman leads diane and phyllis to a pair of tables um and 
they have trouble at first getting up onto these tables, so they have to be helped. But Phyllis is just like, no, I'm not going up there. I'm not going up there. And the great thing about Phyllis is she tries to escape three to four times. And every time she does, there is this nice, uh, this man with a smile on his face that just like escorts her back until eventually she's like, all right, screw it. Let's just get this over with. So at first there was an x-ray like machine in the ceiling that came down and examined them. Um, and Diane could see several figures that were working on panels. Some of them had like clipboards and charts and, and stuff like that. And um, uh, eventually this strange woman would start to tell them about the problems that Earth is going to have. Um, she identifies that uh, there's going to be earthquakes and uh, you know massive waves hitting South Africa. Uh, she talks about how there's going to be crisis and wars in the Middle East and that the AIDS crisis is going to be much worse. And it did go on to be much worse. Um, uh, the, she made a lot of broad general statements that were kind of true in, in many ways. Um, their particular interest in these women was in their RNA and their DNA. So they were here to take a sample of each. So they would actually have them um, take their tops off and they would take a sample from underneath their right breast. And Diane was fine with it. She went along with it. Phyllis, again, was a little confrontational about it. And I don't blame her. I, I wouldn't want to go through that either. Uh, but they end up taking DNA and RNA samples. And eventually, Malila turns to Diane and says, uh, what is the medical condition called that you have? And interestingly enough, uh, Diane noted that when she was 12, she had uh, hemolytic jaundice that they didn't catch until much later. Um, and it had caused her to be drastically underweight at times. And uh, according to her, the condition completely cleared up after this UFO encounter. Interesting. Um, eventually, uh, once they were all done, they were nice and uh, Malila and uh, the gentleman that had escorted them into the ship, escorted them back to their car. And um, uh, they uh, went home and went about their business. And slowly over time, they started to remember more and more of their experiences. Uh, there was an interesting moment for Phyllis when she was uh, getting ready to crawl into bed. She realized that uh, because she was wearing a tracksuit at the same time, they had put it on backwards. So she had a difficult time getting out of it before she climbed into bed. Uh, but um, this story uh, kind of uh, became really famous in, uh, in and around Southern Africa. These women made appearances on radio programs and stuff. And uh, uh, with um, Phyllis, it, the, Phyllis is who Elizabeth Clare actually came to live with for a short period of time uh, before she died uh, in 1994. Um, but uh, just uh, an interesting <laughs> abduction case in, um, uh, it, it kind of just makes me laugh. Some of these elements just make me laugh, but um, 
the interesting cross section between these cases and cases in the United States, cases in England, that despite the fact that a lot of these folks didn't have exposure to UFOs and UFO culture, a lot of their experiences um, are similar uh, in, in many ways. And that to me is, uh, is probably the most fascinating part about these African cases. Um, and that's all I have for you folks. Um, <laughs> oh man. That's all you have. That was a lot, sir. That was 39 pages of oh material. My gosh. <laughs> oh my, that was incredible. Thank you so much. Mm. I, uh, there's so much imagery in those stories that's going mm -hmm. to stick with me. I think the UFO growing legs like a spider and walking around yeah. though, is really... Um, have there been other... I mean, is that like... I, I really enjoy... I really, I love this talk because um, this to me is the antidote for seeing the Tic Tac video 4,000 times. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but uh, we got a lot of, is that, is that just like you'll have a certain amount of that? We have certain percentage of UFOs are just growing away. Is it going to stroll? Uh, no, not like that. The, the, um, the right. a lot of people will report UFOs being on legs, but they'll never report that those legs grow and that these UFOs just start walking around like very briefly. Uh, that's a visual I don't ever want to see because it's it definitely brings up like War of the Worlds kind of vibes and in, in uh, the the craft that these aliens had that kind of walked on three feet that uh, you know picked people up. No, thank you because that that was the first thing that my mind went to and uh, no, no, thank you. <laughs> but you don't want to be extra traumatized. You've already seen a thing that you don't understand, and then it's turning into something else that is even scarier. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, thank you. Um, and and I think that's what draws me to like UFO cases is like there's always these peculiar details. There's like one, two, three, or four in, in every case that just kind of like makes it stick out. Um, uh, you know, with the Mindalore incident, uh, it kind of seems like it's your random average UFO sighting. And then, um, no, there's these short kind of little black dudes that come out and they start doing some stuff and oh yeah their ufo just can kind of walk on legs okay sure like i i hadn't programmed my mind to handle something like that yeah but i guess we're here i guess we'll have to do that <laughs> that one that tripped me up um the one the one crow, crew of ufo knots wearing jeans like I'm mm -hmm. used again, I think, you know, it's like, I like coveralls. Yeah. I'm like, I want a pair of color change coveralls. That would be, that'd be pretty styling, but it's yeah. like, just, they're just wearing jeans. And it's like, again, we're trying, I just, it's a very, like, we're trying to fit in. It was never going to be cool. We just, we have jeans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jeans are cool. People are wearing jeans on this planet, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Jeans and, uh, uh, you know, uh, aluminum foil covered head to toe yeah they're totally wearing that totally wearing that mm -hmm. that's what i love about so many of these like men in black you know sightings where it's like it's just it's just wrong like they're, they're, mm -hmm. it's just out of sync like some parallel universe where that makes sense and they just went to the wrong dimension it's like uh oh this is not the aluminum foil planet what do we do yeah <laughs> 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 oh imagine 
Imagine that's what it is. It's just we packed wrong. It's like I thought yeah. you said this was the aluminum foil planet. And it's like, no, this is the Dijon's planet. This is what, what I was going to do. Right. This is what I was talking about with Jack earlier, right? We assume nefarious, like, thought out plans, but some things could just be mm -hmm. a mistake. Like, these other intelligences don't necessarily have transcendent intelligence, you know? I think they could learn a lot from Back to the Future 2 when Doc Brown just has a case full of money from a, duff, a bunch of different time periods. Like, that's your uh, prep right there. Make sure that you yes. go through and you you just look at the the fashion from each decade. You got to get it right, because if you're not, then uh, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. You're not, and you're not going to be able to do what you want to do, which is apparently kind of just you know look at some sand look at some gravel and uh you know see what's going on there and like i always i'm always kind of fascinated by cases in which uh aliens seem to be interested in like the the soil of all places um the the stonehenge incident uh is one case that comes to mind uh in in 1975 uh there was a gentleman who owned a liquor store that was returning home uh this was at about 12 30 at night and uh he was cutting through north hudson park in new jersey and he sees this ufo that kind of speeds past him it was kind of moving parallel with him and it moves ahead stops in this field and these 10 aliens get out and they just start collecting soil samples like Okay, cool. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, check the soil here of all places in this rando park in, in Jersey. Why Why not? Seems like right. a good idea. I, I mean, if we do that with like archaeological sites and just in general, mm. with stopping beings from somewhere else, like, well, yeah, let's check out this Earth's uh, soil. There yeah, might be something exactly. here. Why not? <laughs> or for like a school project. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Could yeah. be. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, uh, hey, uh, you got a field trip coming up. You're going to have to collect some soil samples. Uh, we're going to really need those. So uh, make sure that you do that. Um, don't be having too much fun. Freak out some old dude if you have to, but uh, get those right. soil samples. And bring your tinfoil clothes. Just oh, yeah. <laughs> gotta, gotta have those tinfoil clothes. I think they might have been all right if this was the 70s and disco and maybe they're going into, you know, a club or something like that. And they might have fit in a little bit there, but uh, just kind of in uh, Forest res uh, Reserve. No, I, you stick out like a sore thumb. I'm sorry. But but it's funny. Okay, so like we have this idea that if you wear like a tinfoil hat, it protects you mm -hmm. from whatever. So maybe they're like, this will protect us from whatever the humans have, right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll just coat ourselves in tinfoil. <laughs> you know, that's that's the hope that they can't read my thoughts if I have this. But, um, you know, I, I think you can need something a little heavier duty. Um, you know, for Superman, it was lead. So if you got some lead, you might be all right. But uh, right. I don't know how much that tinfoil is going to help you out. <laughs> it's just... Um protect your you know or you can be naturally protected like i am and just have an empty head most of the time <laughs> like, I, I try to be just, that person yeah. i think anxiety is its own ward by the oh, way against yes. things it's just it, an energetic you, field yes not, yeah you're not getting can't through, get through not, yeah you're not locking in <laughs> yeah. on anything <laughs> but you have I, I like though that you did have like the um 
the groups that were like we're just really interested in the most simple we're just in you know the, the ground and then it's like um we're gonna do some uranium mining here yeah. bud. like yeah. just <clears throat> it's like the that thoughts went. it's the thoughts that people have when they think something is happening like the the first rational thought that they go to most of the time they're mundane uh or or something like uh you know oh this is probably so and so just doing doing something over here but why do you think the geological survey is in your sheep pen mining uranium like where is the thought process that occurs there other than like i have nothing else that i can go to and and like there are uh interesting similarities between that case uh the Tuscumbia space penguins because these aliens um their craft was shaped kind of like a mushroom landed in a, a nearby pen i don't know if it was like sheep or uh, uh cows or something but they get out they're wearing these like green suits from head to toe they've got kind of these like black eyes uh they weren't sure if they were goggles or something just kind of doing what they were doing uh on their on their farm they see um the uh the witness comes forward and i i think he had a gun with him at the time he was about ready to chase him off he's like no paralysis we're out of here let's get out of here uh it's just like everything is just a random chance oh you're in the right place uh, at the wrong time essentially so yeah we got to get out of here well some of that too it almost struck me i i humorously thought it was an excuse where it's like you guys mm -hmm. taking my sheep and they're like <laughs> no we're uh we're we're uh getting uranium zapping you know it's really um it just it's like one of those flimsy like excuses that like children give you mm -hmm. just like yeah or just like no uh we're uh no we were taking a sheep right i don't yeah. know why you think that we're here for mining uranium zapping yeah. <laughs> no it's just um it, like the zapping thing is a problem for me because it, it occurs time and time again like poor maurice massey this french uh farmer who has a lilac field and it, it, it's absolutely uh, it, it, it's it's not the most beautiful lilac field from what i can tell because it's like it's kind of sparse in areas it's almost like if a lilac field had bald patches that's what it looked like but like these aliens landed in his lilac field and he goes over and he's uh he's like hey what the hell are you doing and they shoot him with a beam of light and actually the very first uh humanoid sighting occurred in uh italy uh not long after the kenneth arnold incident and there's this painter he's out like kind of painting uh scenery i think and these aliens just land nearby and like ufos are a relatively new thing in 1947 at this time and i don't even know if word has gotten to italy i don't know what their sightings were like at that time but these two very short humanoid beings, uh, they had like green skin and very strange yellow eyes. They get out and they start like looking around in the area. And this painter who's just trying to be nice, like waves at him. They shoot him with a beam of light and then they steal his easel. Like what kind of dick move is that? <laughs> They're just as trigger happy as we are. That's yeah. depressing. Yes, yeah. exactly. Like... 
Just any excuse to zap somebody with a beam of light. I mean, if I could zap people with a beam of light and paralyze them, I'd probably be doing it all mm -hmm. the time, to be mm -hmm. fair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's like this this kind of theory that I've I've talked to certain people about with um, the way that um, UFOs present lights, uh, use light to their advantage, and in in a way, it seems as if they have the ability to almost draw the soul out of the body or to severely like um, to, to to cause someone to black out just by hitting with a beam of light, and it's just like. No, how about we get that technology? I don't really care about the UFOs. Give me that light technology. I'm here for it. Because if, if somebody's approaching me on the street, guess what? They're gonna be unconscious for a little while. I don't I don't want to deal with that. You're not gonna be robbing me. Bam, you're done. And I don't have to use a gun. That's fine. Right. And then they have lost time and uh, yeah. that memory for like or the lack of memory, I guess, forever. <laughs> Yeah, oh go God. see see if somebody will do hypnosis. I guess I don't know. Right. Who's this? Who's this weird guy hitting me with some weird beam of light? Oh yeah. my gosh, yeah. we uh, I want to open it up. Questions from the chat? Do we have anything? Um, if there were, I might have missed them in back scroll because I was just engrossed in all of the the stories, but. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to give you folks a few if you want to get uh, a question in front of Rob here. But uh, yeah, just um, I really love the the wild, uh, very details mm -hmm. in that in that stuff. It's just um, so interesting that um, it, like deviates. You know, I know we were talking about um, Whitley Strieber at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of deviates. Like, I feel like that became like a model for things. And I remember reading a lot of reading communion and reading some of the other stuff that came out at the time. And it was just like, that's what happens. The, the greys get you. And it's there's, the same. Yeah, there's um, there's a great kind of graph that Joe Nickel had created uh, that shows uh, different types of alien encounters from the 1940s up until the 1990s. And when you look at it, from a linear perspective, all the aliens look weird, very strange, varied, uh, different up until 1987 when they all start to look like greys. And and that's not to say that uh, there weren't grey type beings uh, seen. Maurice Massey uh, essentially described the beings that shot him with a beam of light as being like greys. And uh, Betty Andreessen, whose abductions uh, started in 1967, she described the aliens as being very uh of a gray ar archetype but now um yeah they're all like grays or they're all nordic beings which is gets into a whole other level of racism that i don't want to get into because it's just get your aryan beings out of my face i don't want them um you've got your reptilians which gets into a whole nother level of racism uh and there were uh, a few stories that i didn't want to talk about one of them is uh credo mutwa who is a very problematic individual he is a member of the zulu tribe and his experiences are with reptilians and he has been this kind of poster child in the 90s for David Icke and his problematic theories on, you know, uh, the elite being reptilian. You know what the most in, the, the most baffling thing to me about David Icke and his bullshit back in the 90s? He starts pointing to all these political leaders 
as being oh, they're shape-shifting reptilians. And then he puts Chris Christopherson on the list, and that is a shot that is fired over my bow, sir, and I am not happy about it. I would Why not Chris Christopherson? Hey! I would not tolerate that. That is, that's a line in the sand. Um, the, yeah. That, yeah, this aggression will not stand. We do have a uh, question from the audience. Um, how common is it for investigators to do the follow-up like in the 20-year frame are i know you mentioned the one investigator who built those mm. relationships but is that um is that common or uncommon practice today it's very uncommon because your main investigators are people with mufon and uh just given the short amount of time i spent in mufon doing uh their, being on their internal review board what you find is that most often than not they will have um uh, less than one hour of communication with the witness if they are even able to get them on a phone and talk to them uh there is generally no follow-up they make an assessment they put that determination on that case and it sits in a bin and there are a lot of fascinating cases even from the small amount that i looked at there that uh you know, you could have gone into, there was one case from Georgia in which this witness and a bunch of other witnesses saw this UFO land in this field. They saw these humanoids. These humanoids basically said, get back in your car. We're not doing anything here. Watched them for a while and their craft disappeared. They never did any follow-up. They never looked for additional witnesses. And that's kind of the face of it. Back in the day with uh, people like, you know, um, uh, J. Allen Hynek, uh, John Keel, um jerome clark the the original investigators uh carried on relationships for years john keel talked about uh for a number of years keeping in contact with a, a number of the witnesses that he talked to just uh you know in case new details emerged or new sightings happened or uh you know just to kind of um draw out additional memories so uh yeah that used to be kind of the standard of the day it's not anymore Seems like, uh, yeah, a, lo a loss that that, uh, mm. that changed that way of doing things. It was a, a, a passion for a lot of people back in the day. It, it, for Keel, it made him some money. It kept him afloat uh, because he would publish in, you know, all sorts of periodicals, Fate Magazine, for instance, and stuff like that. Uh, you don't really have that as much anymore, so there isn't as much of a way to make money off of it. So... Um, you don't have that devoted as much of that devoted uh, investigators uh, out there. Um, there are a few of them, though. Like John Tenney is one of the most devoted investigators I've ever seen. Like in, in the, um, the the strange, uh, you can't even call them humanoid sightings. The stuff that he's been investigating for the last couple of years uh, in and around Michigan of these strange, like, fuzzy triangles and stuff that that moved around on their own like he went and knocked on doors he talked to people he kept at it and um you know there are some good investigators like that um that that do and um you see that occasionally but you don't see it enough yeah i'm checking the chat um 
I just have to just say, we started with donuts and we ended with donuts. <laughs> Space donuts. We had donut holes this morning. Right? It made like, me laugh hysterically. <laughs> I mean, my, my, like, one of my theories is that uh, UFOs are a manifestation of our desire for breakfast foods. There's too many uh, instances in which you have, you got your donuts, you got these flat discs that look like you know uh you know pancakes you got your joe simonton's who's uh and you know you could make an argument that those were not pancakes they were more like cookies they kind of look like cookies but okay i'll give you that you got your egg-shaped crafts um yeah i mean get yourself some bacon looking things and we're good to go i guess i, I you know like let's get this theory some legs here it's breakfast I, uh, foods that just really deeply resonated for mm. me because my um my appetite for carbs is mm. just yeah. incredible yeah yeah right on i i think we're blowing it wide open these ufos are a manifestation for our desire for carbs it's just the way <laughs> that it has to be absolutely i think uh i think between this and ghost farts um today we really just kind of solved a lot of the persistent um persistent issues of the paranormal oh yeah um, oh yeah mystery solved done <laughs> our job is done <laughs> yeah um, we've solved this thing uh there's no need for anybody to do anything further i'll shut the lights out on the way out you know yeah perfect. well if you, if you change your mind you better plug your stuff before... oh yes yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. uh so um I, I I do the Our Strange Skies podcast. I'm actually involved in it in a lot of things. Uh, if you enjoy uh, role playing games, I'm involved in two podcasts there: The Order of Podcasters and Rolling Through the Realms. Go check those out. Uh, uh, I very slowly put out episodes of Our Strange Skies. Uh, what I can promise you is that in the next couple of weeks, because I didn't talk about the aerial school landing, because it's just uh, a lot of it's sifting through the testimony, uh, uh, the varied testimony of a lot of children and trying to piece together one very cohesive narrative. Uh, I will be releasing an episode about that, uh, I would say, within the next two to three weeks. Uh, I've already started to do a lot of research into that. And, um, you know, slowly over time, you'll get more episodes of Our Strange Skies. Uh, I, I think I filled my quota for UFO stuff for the rest of the year with this presentation because, uh, you know, just like a lot of UFOs here. But uh, uh, yeah. if you definitely want to <laughs> check out what I do, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at your UFO guy spelled Y-E-R UFO guy. And there's links to everything there uh, in my profile. And if you, like me, will wake up tomorrow morning and just be like, what do you say? His links are on our website <laughs> um, with all the speakers. Yep. So I think we're close to wrapping it up. I want to say thank you so much for coming on and just giving like another. Uh, you just had incredible presentation after incredible presentation. And this was like just I'm going to be thinking about, like I said, I'm going to be thinking about a lot of the imagery from these cases for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you all for asking me to do this. It was, it was a blast. Uh, it was oh. a blast to produce 39 pages worth of material. Ah. <laughs> Research. <laughs> I, yeah. Exciting. That's amazing. Yeah. That is, <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> And I want to tell people out there in um, YouTube land before we log off, tomorrow is the third and final day. And um, 
shorter but just as strong we're having our divination panel at at noon eastern standard um vanessa who is on the who is on the divination panel uh so isabella rotman who designed that this might hurt tarot deck um she's a friend of mine she's an incredible artist she does a lot of art and um, advocacy around sex education um and then cassandra snow uh they have written two books Queering the tarot and queering your craft. So uh, I feel like a lot of the discussion is going to be about opening up the tarot for more diverse audiences, as opposed to keeping it kind of a white hetero deck that most people are familiar with. Um, Izzy's deck is incredibly diverse in its imagery and the people who are in it. So I'm very excited to be talking to the two of them tomorrow. And then following that, last but certainly not least, the legendary AP Strange <laughs> will be giving us his bug-eyed monsters and UFOs re presentation that uh, somebody designed a really nice poster for. <laughs> and um, I am really, really excited about that. That is going to be uh, a phenomenal end to a phenomenal weekend and uh i just want to thank everybody that came in and out today the people that stuck with us um yeah yeah i'm sorry you can see i'm losing right it's this kind of, you know, it's just... right. you know our, our hearts are full but our brains are are nearing empty <laughs> yep <laughs> or just overwhelmed from all of the incredible information Every single speaker and presenter just had, again, really well researched and and thoughtful approaches to to this work. Uh, we just appreciate it so much. Yeah. So go check out their links on the page, on our web page, and check out the um. Yeah. <laughs> I know we're all just. <laughs> I got, it, I got it. I got it. I got it. Right. Uh, some charities. <laughs> exactly. Buy, buy things from all of the speakers. They deserve your support. Um, again, if you have a couple pennies to throw in the chip jar, please do. All of that money is going to the speakers. Um, we have a merch store right now. Again, uh, money from that is going to be paying for this and also going to charity. So um, mm -hmm. it's. I'm just very excited by all of this. Yeah. And with that, good night, weirdos. Good night. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Again, special thanks to Vanessa, Mira, and Jason for putting that together. Special thanks to Floats for the use of our theme song, UFOs, from the album, not an album. Go check it out on Spotify, Apple Music, uh, and Bandcamp. Our logo was designed by the great Desdemona. And don't forget to look up. Because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or over the skies of Africa. In Gray We Trust.
Media.